European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 39, Issue 39, Focus Issue on Valvular Heart Disease, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Valvular Heart Disease, Tricuspid Regurgitation is the New Frontier. Within a decade, valvular heart disease graduated to centre stage with the introduction of catheter-based interventions such as transarterial valve implantation, or TAVI, and mitroclip, as also reflected by rapidly updated guidelines. There is an unaddressed issue, however, i.e. the tricuspid valve. Indeed, tricuspid regurgitation, particularly when severe, is an ominous sign with a fierce outcome, no matter whether it occurs in the context of heart failure or left-sided valve disease. Medical therapy is often unsuccessful, and surgical interventions are risky in these sick patients, and the results of it are not overwhelming. Thus, the tricuspid valve is the next frontier. As a first step, the natural history is important, a fact that is provided in the article Development of Significant Tricuspid Regurgitation Over Time and Prognostic Implications, New Insights into Natural History, by Jeroen J. Bax and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. In 1,000 patients with a mean age of 68 years and significant tricuspid regurgitation quartiles according to the time interval between two echocardiograms were constructed. Group 1, less than or equal 1.2 years. Group 2, 1.3 to 4.7 years. Group 3, 4.8 to 8.9 years. And Group 4, greater than or equal 9.0 years. Baseline age, presence of pacemaker and defibrillator lead, presence of mild tricuspid regurgitation, reduced tricuspid annulus plane systolic excursion, and tricuspid annulus dilation were associated with development of significant tricuspid regurgitation in a short period of time. Any valvular surgery without concomitant tricuspid surgery occurring between both echocardiograms was also associated with a higher risk of fast development of significant tricuspid regurgitation. During a median follow-up of 2.9 years after the second echocardiogram, 42% of patients with significant tricuspid regurgitation died. Patients with fast development of significant tricuspid regurgitation showed worse survival than those with slower development. Thus, by identifying patients at increased risk of developing significant tricuspid regurgitation, close echocardiographic surveillance may permit effective therapy at an earlier stage to improve survival. Indeed, novel catheter-based tricuspid intervention is currently being tested. These important new findings and their implications are put into context in an editorial by Blaise Anthony Carabello from the East Carolina Heart Institute in Greenville, North Carolina, USA. Tricuspid regurgitation not only affects survival, but also quality of life in patients. It is associated with heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, and peripheral edema. This is further elaborated in an article entitled Clinical Presentation and Outcome of Tricuspid Regurgitation in Patients with Systolic Dysfunction 
by Jan Topilski and colleagues from the Tel Aviv Medical Center in Israel. They investigated the impact of tricuspid regurgitation in 271 patients with left ventricular systolic dysfunction and functional tricuspid regurgitation, and an effective regurgitant orifice was 0.26 plus or minus 0.3 cm squared on clinical outcome. Presentation with right heart failure was strongly related to the degree of tricuspid regurgitation. An effective regurgitant orifice greater than or equal 0.4 cm squared was associated with increased mortality and increased cardiac events, including mortality, new atrial fibrillation, or heart failure. These data emphasize the clinical impact of functional tricuspid regurgitation and warrant large cohort analysis and clinical trials of treatment of tricuspid regurgitation associated with left ventricular dysfunction, as outlined in an editorial by Patrizio Lancelotti from the University Hospital of Liège in Belgium. While treatment options for patients with aortic stenosis have massively expanded over the last decade, we know little about the mechanisms leading to, for instance, amyloid deposition and inflammation, among others, and prevention of the valvular condition. In their article, Elevated Blood Pressure and Risk of Aortic Valve Disease, a cohort analysis of 5.4 million UK adults, Kazem Rahimi and colleagues from the University of Oxford in the UK provide some insights into the matter. In a cohort study of 5.4 million UK patients with no known cardiovascular disease or aortic valve disease at baseline, 20,680 patients, or 0.38%, were diagnosed with aortic stenosis and 6,440, or 0.12%, with aortic regurgitation over 9.2 years. Systolic blood pressure was continuously related to the risk of aortic stenosis and regurgitation, with no evidence of nadir, down to 115 millimeters of mercury. Each 20 millimeters of mercury increment in systolic blood pressure was associated with a 41% higher risk of aortic stenosis and a 38% higher risk of aortic regurgitation. Associations were stronger in younger patients, but with no strong evidence for interaction by sex or body mass index. Each 10 millimeters of mercury increment in diastolic blood pressure was associated with a 24% higher risk of aortic stenosis, but not with aortic regurgitation. Moreover, each 15 millimeter of mercury increment in pulse pressure was associated with a 46% greater risk of aortic stenosis and a 53% higher risk of aortic regurgitation. Thus, long-term exposure to elevated blood pressure is strongly associated with increased risk of aortic stenosis and regurgitation. As outlined in an editorial by Stefano Massi from University College London in the UK, the possible causal nature of these observations warrants further investigation. Mechanical forces and inflammation have not only been associated with valvular heart disease, but also thromboembolism. In fact, 
The moderate effect of statins have been related to their anti-inflammatory properties. Furthermore, thromboembolism is also a complication after TAVI. In a final research article entitled Risk of Venous Thromboembolism in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis, Psoriasis and Rheumatoid Arthritis, a general population-based cohort study, Alexis Ogdi and colleagues from the University of Pennsylvania in the USA determined the risk of venous thromboembolism defined as the combined endpoint of deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism among 12,084 patients with psoriatic arthritis, 194,288 with psoriasis, and 51,762 with rheumatoid arthritis, and 1,225,571 controls. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis with and without a disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug prescription, and patients with mild psoriasis had significantly elevated risks of venous thromboembolism with a hazard ratio of 1.35, 1.29, and 1.07 respectively after adjustment. Severe psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis prescribed disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs had an elevated but no longer statistically significant risk for venous thromboembolism. The age and sex-adjusted risk of pulmonary embolism was elevated in rheumatoid arthritis, severe psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis patients prescribed disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Thus, while systemic inflammation is a risk factor for venous thromboembolism, the risk of venous thromboembolism compared to controls is different among patients with different inflammatory disorders, suggesting activation of different pathways, an aspect that is further discussed in an editorial by Robert Glynn from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. This issue is further complemented by a discussion forum contribution relating to the manuscript published some time ago entitled Patent Foramen Ovale Closure versus Medical Therapy for Prevention of Recurrent Cryptogenic Embolism, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Clinical Trials by Adnan Kastrati from the German Heart Center in Munich, Germany. In their contribution entitled Assessing the Quality of Evidence Supporting Patent Foramen Ovale Closure Over Medical Therapy After Cryptogenic Stroke, William F. McIntyre and colleagues from the McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada comment on the article, while Ahmad and colleagues respond in a separate contribution. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers. <laughs>